Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Dr. Larry Brilliant, starred in a 1960s movie that was a total flop. The film was called Medicine Ball Caravan, and it was a sort of documentary that followed Larry and a bunch of other hippies as they followed the touring buses of acts like the Grateful Dead. But despite the commercial failure of this film, I would posit that it led, though somewhat indirectly, to the global eradication of smallpox. That's because after the filming ended, Larry kept the hippie caravan going until he reached India and, while there, joined the World Health Organization's effort to eliminate smallpox from the country. It is a great story. Larry is now an epidemiologist with the Skoll Foundation, and we have an absolutely fascinating conversation about his life and career, including how a chance encounter with Martin Luther King in 1962 forever changed his life. Many of these stories are included in his recently published memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the World's Worst Disease. We kick off discussing the current threat from global pandemics before pivoting to his really extraordinarily unique life story. He says that sometimes people call him Forrest Gump, and you'll see why. And as always, please do reach out to me via globaldispatchespodcast.com. There's a little contact button you can use to send me an email. And as I, I say often, I really do love hearing from you. I love hearing what's on your mind. And I love hearing your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. So hit me up and I will do my best to uh, to follow through on your request. And now here is Dr. Larry Brilliant. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, uh, the rate at which viruses jump from their animal hosts to human beings, this spillover phenomenon, uh, these are zoonotic diseases that cause nearly all of our pandemics, and they're usually viruses. So the rate at which a virus jumps from a monkey or a bat to a human, that's a constant, um, other than the long-term changes we make in the environment that, that increase that. But what's not a constant is how well prepared are we. And we're in a moment of time where the world is singularly less prepared. In Davos last week, a group of organizations put together a, a, a large amount of money for a pandemic response, including vaccine development, point of care development. But, but our systems that depend on governments and the UN are singularly vulnerable with a new administration in Washington, 
and a Washington administration that is not pro-public health mm -hmm. by any means. We have a, a new secretary general, a wonderful person. It's going to take a while, though, before all the pandemic work inside of the UN is up to speed. There'll be a little hiccup, I think. And in WHO, in May, we will have a new director general. There's some wonderful candidates. Mm -hmm. But WHO is going to go through a period of introspection and reorganization after the mistakes and problems that arose mm -hmm. in Ebola, and I would add Zika to that. So it's almost like a so, perfect storm. You have, the, you have a, a, yeah, an administration yeah. in the United States that might not care too much about taking on these kind of public health threats, uh, combined with uh, just changes in administration, even though probably well-meaning changes in, in the UN and at the World Health Organization, which you referenced earlier, is in the process of selecting their next director general. Um, one candidate of whom, uh, at least, is was the UN's point person uh, on the uh, Ebola uh, issue. Um, but there are other sort of very well-qualified candidates there as well. But your point is that it'll take them a while to sort of just establish themselves and get into place. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the, the, this is a time when we're going to have to have um, an, another kind of response mechanism. And we at Skoll Global Threats Fund, uh, along with many others, I hope, are going to be putting together a private sector civil society organization um, hmm. that will try to at least increase the speed of detection of novel diseases that could lead to pandemics. And uh, we've been doing that a lot through a group called CORDS, which is an organization of 28 sovereign countries and four UN agencies, including WHO, as well as five foundations. That's one way to do it. Uh, there's EpiCorps, which is a group of epidemiologists all over the world who work together. And there's several other uh, techniques, you know, uh, participatory surveillance, digital disease surveillance. But we're going to have to redouble the efforts of the scientific community, the philanthropic community, and the NGO community, at least, to create a pandemic response during the next couple of years when we're going to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And it's probably worth pointing out how central the Obama administration and the United States government was to curbing the uh, Ebola uh, outbreak as well and the uh, Ebola epidemic. It really wasn't until the United States made this a priority that the tide started to turn against Ebola in West Africa. And, and you know, there, there's, I've seen studies that kind of point to the, the, the Obama's visit to the CDC as sort of elevating the Ebola uh, outbreak in West Africa to a top priority in the White House itself, and then appointing Ron Klain as 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 the the czar, and then having a special meeting at the United Nations that mobilized kind of global support to um, isolate and and eventually uh, stop this pandemic from spreading. Well, that's terrific that you you mentioned Ron Klain because I think he was the cornerstone of all of the uh, outreach that Obama did, including uh, sending ships and military to, to build EOCs, to build um, response entities, which, by the way, were never really needed because once that amount of effort uh, began to uh, take effect, it was, I won't say easy, but it was much faster to, mm -hmm. uh, to contain the outbreak. And, you know, while that was a terrible outbreak and 10,000 lives were lost, that that is a, um, oh, I don't, I don't know how else to say this, in saying that... That is a, a, a small epidemic compared to what a real pandemic would look like that uh, compared to the 1917-1918 uh, 
great influenza, which ironically we are going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary, 100-year anniversaries on World Health Day, April 7th hmm. this year. We're going to celebrate 100 years since the last really, really big one. And I think that will focus attention. That is why we made the movie Contagion, by the way, which is to kind of focus attention mm-hmm. on what a, I hate to say this word real pandemic because there's so many bad things <laughs> that can be pandemic, but, but th- that kind of pandemic. Um, I- I remember when, when Contagion came out, I, I was in a meeting with uh, Thomas Frieden of the CDC, and he pointed out that the budget of that movie was like 10 times more than the budget of their emergency response mechanisms for, uh, for fighting those very pandemics depicted in the movie. Well, I don't think that's correct, but it, it, it certainly was a big budget movie, yeah. and uh, it was a regular Hollywood movie, but it was absolutely scientifically impeccable, mm-hmm. and we worked really hard to get the top epidemiologists in the world to make sure that there was no hyperbole in it. In fact, I'll tell you the secret, which is after we had finished writing the script and the, the actors were already getting going, we decided to cut the number of apparent uh, deaths in that we would normally expect from the virus that we had created on uh, Ian Lipkin's computer at Columbia University, a fake, fake virus. Mm-hmm. We cut it by 10, 10 times to make it one-tenth the size of what it might have been because we thought people would react to it like a zombie movie if we made it yeah. that big. Um, so what, uh, sort of surveying the world, is there a particular kind of pandemic that you are sort of most, that keeps you up at night the, the most that you think maybe in this sort of kind of window of that window of opportunity for a pandemic to spread that you are most frightened of? Yes, there is. Um, well, first it would have to be respiratory spread. Uh, if you think of something that's spread by the GI system or by water or fecal oral contamination. We have had cholera pandemics in the history of the world, um, but I don't think that that kind of a disease would gain the, the traction to infect 2 billion people, which is what H1N1 probably infected. And that wasn't even a really bad pandemic by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be bloodborne, uh, as Ebola is, or loss of fever, or Marburg, or some of these other diseases, HIV AIDS. But if it's bloodborne, it is likely to take a much longer period of time to gain traction uh, than, but a respiratory disease, because it would have a short incubation period, because it would spread very quickly to a lot of people. That's what I fear the most. And that puts it right in the category of either influenza Mm-hmm. Or a coronavirus like MERS or SARS, yeah. and 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 um, uh, MERS is is the Middle East coronavirus that's currently kind of it's, it's taken East hold. It's respiratory syndrome, mm-hmm. yes, and it is a coronavirus, um, just like SARS, uh, and th- they are most likely bat diseases. Uh, in the case of uh, SARS, there was a civet cat as a reservoir, and in the case of MERS, it's probably a camel. Um, but yes, those are again zoonotic zoonotic diseases, animals to humans. But when you're looking at flu, you're looking at ducks and migratory fowl and chickens and uh, usually a virus that could live in many different animals, mm-hmm. pigs, and, for example, as, as well as in, in birds. Um, swine flu and bird flu and human flu carry so much in common that it's easy for that mm-hmm. disease to be spread. Um, 
And the, the, the sort of nightmare scenario, right, is, is a, a disease that spreads as easily as the flu spreads by sneezing or, or coughing on someone, but yet is like, has very, very deadly, unlike the, the, the common through is like death rates of like 50% or something like that. Well, it doesn't have to be that, that, that large death rate by any means, but if you're going to, uh, if you're going to affect 2 billion people, if it had a death rate of 1%, that would be 2 million deaths. I mean, you just start thinking about mm-hmm. the numbers and uh, if it had a, what would happen to this world that is so frightened and taught right now if 10 million people died? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything would stop. Ships would stop. Airplanes would stop. I and we know. almost had that with Ebola. I mean, uh, until sort of calmer heads prevailed, you had um, certain governments that, that blocked their borders. You had, you know, state governments here in the United States that demanded the isolation of, of people who um, had gone over to, to work in, in hospitals in West Africa. So, yeah, I mean, you can imagine the, the kind of panic that would ensue. Well, you point out a very important point, which is that uh, with with a, an epidemic that killed ten thousand, we could have ground the world to a halt. What would what would happen if that disease were on all continents and it was tens of millions who died? Um, so, on on that cheery note, I'd love to to um, pivot and and learn a little bit more about you. You referenced earlier that you helped write Contagion. I know you've had a really interesting and, and fascinating career um, in, in epidemiology, in medicine, and just in, in life. Um, and that's all in your book, Sometimes Brilliant, your, your new, newly published memoir. Um, so take me back. Where are you from? Where were you born? Well, let me, let me just correct you that I didn't yeah. help write Contagion. I helped uh, with Jeff Skoll and the folks think of it and put it together, and I edited it. But uh, okay. the writer of it was uh, Scott Burns, a wonderful writer, and I wouldn't want to take anything away okay, from his okay. genius. You're a part um, of the team, we'll say. I was part of the team, yeah. I, I, I did the techie stuff. I made sure that the scientists were really great. Um, so I'm from Detroit, Michigan, or Detroit, as we used to say. <laughs> um, and I grew up uh, inside of Seven Mile Road, so Eight Mile Road is the border. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to the University of Michigan as an undergraduate, and I'm kind of a Michigan person. And okay. Until I, you know, and, until I met Martin Luther King. And he uh, infected me with a different kind of virus, so, not a zoonotic. <laughs> he infected me with the virus of activism. So, so um, what what kind of family were born into? What did your parents do? Uh, I'm the first uh, person in my family on both sides to graduate high school or to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was a uh, he existed sort of at the fringes of society, uh, and he operated a chain of jukeboxes. Uh, his father was a bricklayer. My grandfather on the other side was a tailor. They both came from Eastern Europe. We are Orthodox. They were Orthodox uh, Jews coming from the shtetls. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my dad was born in uh, Belarus, and I'm an immigrant, a first-generation American. Belarus. There you go. Yeah, my, my, uh, my, my deep relatives are from Belarus as well. You know, Moldova, that area. Good stuff in Belarus that we don't know about. I have not been there yet, unfortunately. It's then, one, one day they used to call it Bessarabia back in the day, right? That's uh, the, the Belarusia. Belarusia, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, okay, yeah. so so end up in Detroit. You uh, are the first of your family to go to high school, let alone uh, college. Yeah, graduate high school. Graduate, graduate high, high school. school. So when um, when did you have this transformational meeting with Dr. Martin Luther King? What was what was take me inside that moment? Uh, well, my dad was dying, 
And I was a uh, sophomore or junior at uh, University of Michigan, and I was a pretty depressed kid. I didn't have any inner resources to deal with my dad dying. He was the most important person in my life. And uh, Martin Luther King was speaking. He wasn't, wasn't yet famous. He hadn't won his Nobel Prize. The Mississippi summer hadn't taken place. And it was a very bad rainy day. <laughs> but I somehow got out of my funk and I went to hear him speak, but very few students did. And a hall that would have held 3,000 only had a couple hundred people. And Martin Luther King looked out at the sparse audience and laughed and laughed and laughed. <laughs> and he said, come on up, come on up on stage. So it's, there'll be more of me to go around. <laughs> and that, that, that itself, that level of intimacy just blew my mind. And then he, um, of course, he talked about a world in which the content of a child's character, not the color of their skin affected their destiny. And he spoke, as we've all heard, that the world is moving towards a better place, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. But what he said to me that changed me forever, he said, but that moral arc of the universe will not tip towards justice on its own. You've got to get your ass out of your chair and jump up and grab that arc and bend it and twist it by your effort towards a more just world. And to a kid who was depressed and who thought he had no place in the world, that said to me that the world's going to get better, but that there was something for me to do. And I became an activist. There was a job for me to do. And it wasn't just me. If there were 200 people in that room, I can't recall how many, but I've seen the photos of the empty hall after that. We were all changed forever. We all went down to Mississippi. We marched for civil rights. We marched against the war in Vietnam. So contagious was his belief that the world was becoming a better place. I mean, it's like Tilhar Dijardin or Aurobindo in India, that the spiritual part of life shows us the world is getting better and better, but that there's a job for us to do. And what, that was it. I, I was off and running. Well, what's remarkable, I mean, you said this is 1962, so he could not have been more than like 33 years old at the time. Uh, and you were probably like 18, 19 years old. So he's like 10 years That's older right. than you. And having such like profound insights on how the world works and the way the world should be. Well, he, he was a student of Gandhi. He was a student of and, and, and a deep student of Gandhi, I think. I think you're really seeing the impact that Gandhi had a generation later on the Cesar Chavez's of the world and the Martin Luther King's of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so how did that um, activism, that idea of activism inspire you to, to medicine? Well, I don't know. There was that so much as kind of my dad dying and my grandfather dying at the same time. And I, uh, I was going to go to law school in Boston. And then um, my mom said, uh, you say you're a good kid, you're, but how would you abandon your, you know, your mother who's just been widowed and lost her father? You got to stay in Detroit. And it was August, and I could I couldn't get into a law school that late in the season, but I was admitted to medical school by chance, and I hadn't expected that. Huh. Um, so it was I I don't know serendipity. <laughs> um, so how then did you sort of start to manif make manifest your kind of combination of, of medical training and, and activism? Like what were the early manifestations of that in your career? Well, I, I marched with Martin Luther King and uh, a group of us who were part of uh, an activist group called the Medical Community for Human Rights, Medical Committee for Human Rights. 
uh, we would ostentatiously put on our white coats and have a stethoscope visibly dangling and <laughs> we formed a, like a cordon sanitaire a kind of <laughs> around Martin Luther King hoping to protect him from um, anyone who would do him harm. So I marched with him several times and I was arrested with him. I think a better term would be I was detained with him and three or four hundred other people and um, it, it was not like a real arrest in a real prison. It was play jail and uh, we heard him sing uh, Amazing Grace um, as we were all in this one lockup in, in Chicago. Um, but it continued to be the most inspirational part of my life. And, and then I met Cesar Chavez and many of the other activists who had been, um, I think, inspired by, by Gandhi. Uh, I mean, did, did you have the opportunity to have sort of personal conversations with Martin Luther King during, during that time? Once. Just once. <laughs> what was that but conversation? It, um, it was my trying to understand uh, what part religion played in his uh, optimism. And I think this is what's important to remember. He was a deeply religious man. He was a Baptist minister. And, you know, I've, I've seen a, a lot of people who wear these uh, armbands that say, what would Jesus do? You know, and then I think of some of the things that have been done by you know Christian countries and it's hard to square that circle um, and Martin Luther King would have demanded that you think first of the poorest person before you act and uh, that that was the motivator for me uh, Gandhi said exactly that he said I'll give you a, a bit of a magic amulet to protect you from ever doing anything wrong and that amulet isn't a physical amulet it's this before you act Consider if the act that you will do will benefit the poorest and most vulnerable person in the world. If it will, you're safe. You're protected. <laughs> if it won't, I encourage you to think again. And Martin Luther King was exactly like that. And, and that's, that's really inspirational. That was inspirational to me at 18, and that's inspirational to me at 70. Um, so how how did you make it to San Francisco, which I, I know played an important part of your own kind of growth and, and development? Um, the summer, uh, uh, 1967, uh, I got a summer job as a civil rights specialist for the federal government in, in a group called Office of Equal Health Opportunity. And I was, along with many other medical students, sent to Mississippi and Alabama to integrate hospitals that had been segregated. And there was some difficulty in Mississippi. There were some guns fired. I never really understood what happened, but we were evacuated to a secondary place to work, which happened to be San Francisco. So we were dropped off by the federal government in San Francisco in the middle of the summer of love. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a fair thing to do to a kid <laughs> from Detroit who has no, I, I didn't have the tools to resist, uh, the, the summer of love in San Francisco. Well, what, so, so what, what was the scene? I mean, describe it a, a little bit. Um, you know, I think most of my uh, audience are, are not of your generation. I've only <laughs> seen it through, you know, the montages of, of movies about the era. What, what was your, like, how did you experience the, the, the summer of love? Uh, the summer of love was sex, drugs, and rock and roll on steroids. Um, it was a feeling in the air that, um, a, the young, younger generation. Now, this would have been the, you know, this is the, the leading edge of the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. That 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 uh, 
the world was going to be a better place and that um, uh, all the experimentation and communes and living arrangements and between men and women and every every combination imaginable, those experiments were part of this and um, there were a lot of, uh, um, you know, there was a big commitment, I think, to stopping the war in Vietnam and to helping end poverty. I mean, it was just a, uh, it was a cauldron of new ideas and and new feelings and new experiences, and it was it was quite overwhelming and wonderful. Now, at what point or how did you get connected with like the rock and roll scene at the time? Right, my my understanding is that you have some connection with like the Grateful Dead or Jefferson yeah. Airplane, which were yeah. which were bands that were very prominent in San Francisco at at, at the time, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, well, I um, when I was doing my internship uh, in San Francisco, which came about because of that visit to San Francisco. Um, uh, a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz Island and they wanted to reclaim it. Uh, there's a Treaty of Laramie that says if any federal land is declared surplus, it goes back to the Indians it was taken from. Hmm. So they were reclaiming this land. Indians lived on the island. A woman was pregnant. She wanted to have her baby on the island. Uh, the n- newspaper said, isn't there a single doctor in San Francisco willing to go live on the island? And I thought that was like an ad saying, Larry... <laughs> Come out here and and I did deliver a baby. Yeah, on Alcatraz. I did. I delivered a baby on on Alcatraz. Was that the first baby baby you delivered? Uh, No, it wasn't the first baby I delivered. But I had only delivered a few. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty. It was it was was miraculous and wonderful. Um, But when I got off the island, because I was the only doctor and the only non-Indian who had gotten off the island and could report what happened, um, there was a lot of media attention, Mm -hmm. and Warner Brothers saw me, I guess, and asked me if I wanted to play a young doctor in another movie called The Medicine Ball Caravan. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I agreed we would do that. And we got our little hippie bus, our little German Westphalia, and we putt-putt-putted behind 20 big buses, the movie caravan. And the movie was supposed to have been about the Grateful Dead, but they didn't show <laughs> and until later. And the Jefferson Airplane and Jethro Tull. And the movie ended with a Pink Floyd concert in Canterbury, near near London, and we decided we wanted to stay on the buses. We bought new buses, and we drove from England uh, to Kathmandu. So wait, wait, who, is, while... who is we in in, in, in this? So, so <laughs> it just sounds like it's it sounds like kind of like a like a hippie hazy dream. Um, just just the, the, the way you describe it, just sort of getting filmed. Um, in my understanding that this movie, the Medicine Ball Caravan, was kind of like a, a flop, but it was um, intended to be sort of like a, a follow-up to the very well-received Woodstock film. And so the Warner Brothers trying to cash in on the popular of that film with, with a new film. Both are true. You, right? It was absolutely yeah. a flop. It was a terrible movie, and <laughs> it was supposed to be a sequel <laughs> to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the Who was uh, Wavy Gravy and the Hog Farm Commune and a lot of the musicians yeah. uh, and cast from that movie. And then Wavy Gravy um, was like a counterculture figure of the time, right? Wavy Gravy was the master of ceremonies at Woodstock, okay. who famously said, what I have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400000 <laughs> And we lived uh, in Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey, India, Nepal. 
um, just making your way across, uh, you know, uh, across the region. Did you ever run into any like, op- like major sort of political obstacles? Like I have to imagine you guys are like a bunch of like long haired hippies traveling through somewhat culturally conservative regions at the time who encountering people who may not sort of like know what to, to make of you. It was the opposite. Okay. I imagine we looked like Martians, but everybody was so kind to us. I, I remember coming to a Kurdish village at the foot of Mount Ararat, and the villagers treated us with such dignity and love and respect. And and here's something else to remember. In every little village we would go, if it was a Muslim village, there'd be a picture of Mecca. If it was a Hindu village, a picture of Vishnu or Shiva, Christian, there'd be a cross Buddhist Buddha, but in in many of those villages, there was a picture of John F. Kennedy Hmm. right next to that. And that was the moment in time that America aspirationally represented something in that world. And while we may have looked like Martians, we were treated with so much dignity and respect. It actually, that's what created my entire commitment to economic development and working globally and the United Nations, this feeling that these people were so wonderful to us and they had no reason to be. And now it's my turn to try to give back. It was all started there. And I, I did, I wound up living, as you know, in an ashram um, with a teacher, a guru, um, a monastery in the Himalayas, right at the quarter of India, Tibet, China, and Nepal. If you put your finger right on that spot, that's where my wife and I lived for several years. What, what drew you to that, to that ashram? Well, there was a book, Be Here Now, that uh, uh, Richard Alpert, who had become Baba Ramdas, had written. <clears throat> but what, what drew me to stay there was that a constant flow of people would come up there who were of every religion imaginable, Baha'is and uh, Jains and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Christians and Jews. And, um, and my guru, my teacher, would say to all of them that all religions were good and all contained a kernel of wisdom. And uh, he used an expression, sub ek, we're all part of one, we're all part of one thing. Uh, and there was so much love in that ashram. Uh, and I had seen so much uh, fighting politically in the United States. It was, um, it was a very magical place. I know that's not exactly the word that mm-hmm. we would usually use in the UN. Uh, but then he would, then he said to me one day, uh, he called me Dr. America. That's the name he gave me. <laughs> That's a good he one. Said that uh, I like that. He, Dr. America. He, Dr. America. Sounds like a comic book, I think. Yeah. Um, and he said to me, uh, you're going to become Dr. United Nations. You're going to go work for the UN. And if you think of me with long hair down to the middle of my back and a beard to my knees, wearing a, a kurta pajama and how strange I looked. And he said, Go get out of here right now. You're going to go get a job at the World Health Organization giving vaccinations to help eradicate smallpox. And I had never seen a case of smallpox. I'd never dreamed of working for the UN. And of course, when I walked into the WHO office in New Delhi, they kicked me out. (laughs) And uh, I kept on going back. He kept on sending me back a dozen times and they kicked me out each time. And they should have kicked me out. Let me make this clear to everybody in the UN listening. They should have kicked me out. I, You're I had no skills. I'd never seen a case of smallpox. I had no training beyond medical school. But after a dozen visits, I got a little smarter. I trimmed my hair, my beard. I got a suit. And uh, a wonderful woman who was the UN Woman of the Year, Nicole Grasset, 
and won the French Legion of Honor, she was trying to put together a smallpox program in India. There wasn't yet one. Mrs. Gandhi hadn't yet permitted one. Mm -hmm. And she and D.A. Henderson, who became the global head of the smallpox eradication program, they interviewed me. And while they had their real doubts about me, uh, and D.A. actually wrote in his note, I'm not so sure about this guy. He seems like a nice guy, but he appears to have gone native, is what he wrote <laughs> in his note. <clears throat> Despite that, they persuaded the UN and the government of India to create a position low enough <laughs> so they could hire me and keep me under the radar. Um, and they did. They hired me as a, a, uh, an assistant, as a secretary, and uh, as a writing secretary, not as a lofty secretary. Okay, yes. And Literally as off, a secretary. Yeah. Literally yeah. as a secretary, because I could speak Hindi and I could type and I could speak English. Uh, and then um, there was a shortage of one doctor from Russia when they were trying to build the program, and they took a chance on sending me to the field. And Bill Fagey, yeah, wonderful man, a very um, famous uh, uh, person who is who's helped you know, eradicate smallpox. Bill Fagey is, is a, a very famous head of CDC. Yeah, and, very famous uh, public health official. This wonderful, yeah. wonderful man. Uh, he took me out to the field to a village and showed me my first case of smallpox and and held me up when I broke down and started crying because it was such a terrible disease. So can, uh, can and, I stop you there? Can you describe the, the disease? Because, you know, it's been eradicated now for our over 30, 35 years. What, what is it? What is the disease? So, so, you know, among epidemiologists, we do play this game, my virus is worse than your virus. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any disease in history worse than smallpox. It, it is a series of uh, antigen-antibody reactions, pustules and, and um, scabs all over the body, inside the body, outside the body, um, often on people's eyes. 10% of um, the blindness in, in the world was caused by smallpox at that time. Um, the cause of death is usually pneumonia because of lesions that collect fluid in your lungs and secondary infections. Um, but just imagine, in some cases, you couldn't find a single inch of healthy skin where you could put your finger lesions covered every mm -hmm. part of the body. And it's just and one out of every agonizing and, and, and painful and slow death. I have to imagine from infection and unfair. I mean, if you're looking at it from my eyes, uh, no amount of karma or incarnation could justify a world in which little children died from that terrible, horrible disease. And, um, and when I, from the time I first saw my first case of smallpox to the end, uh, about a quarter of a million people died of smallpox in India. Um, but even in the summer of love, when I was fritting about in, in San Francisco, two or three million people in the world died of smallpox. It wasn't that long ago. It was the 20th century where half a billion people died from smallpox. 500 million people got smallpox in the in the 1900s, in the 20th century. Um, and it and, had been eradicated from the, the Western Hemisphere, at least from North America, a, a longer time ago. Yes. Uh, maybe I wouldn't use the word eradicate until it's all gone all over mm -hmm. the world. But yes, clear Eliminated, yeah. the developed world be, by a combination of education and vaccination. But that wouldn't work in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan mm -hmm. because the density of the population and the growth rate was so great if you vaccinated everybody a year later, there would be 25 new million births in India. And um, that's as many as were in Australia or Canada. Mm -hmm. No, a new, a new program had to be developed and it was developed by Bill Fagey and it was called search and containment. 
and search meant you'd find every single case of smallpox in the country at the same time and build a wall or a ring of immunity around it. And that meant that uh, we gathered 150,000 workers, including 170 doctors, including doctors from 170 countries. And we visited every single house in India. We searched every village in India. And we made 2 billion house calls to find every case and circumscribe it with a ring of immunity, with vaccination and um, quarantine. And uh, the last case of smallpox in India was in May of 1975, the last case of variola major killer smallpox, because there is another variety, variola minor, minor smallpox. But the last case of uh, variola major was in Bangladesh, a little girl named Rahima Banu. And when she coughed and when the scabs fell off of her mark, that was the end of a chain of transmission going back into antiquity. And I was there. I saw her. I took a photo of her. And when that, when that epidemic ended, when that disease ended, um, you can imagine that all of us who were part of it wanted to do something like that for the rest of our lives. Can, and felt, just just for, for reference, how long did it take you to, to reach those 2 billion houses? You said May 1975 was the, the last uh, infection in India. When did you start this program? that Fagi uh, uh, developed? Well, the, the, the smallpox program was begun uh, by uh, a Russian, um, uh, 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 Dr. Ladney, who, uh, Dr. Zhdanov, who proposed to the World Health Assembly in 19, uh, 1965 that smallpox could be eradicated in 10 years. And the UN, the World Health Assembly, agreed to do that. So that was the official start of the program. So 15 years is what it took. Uh, in India, the program began in 1972, mm -hmm. and I closed it off. Uh, DA sent me back to uh, turn the lights off the program and put all the files in archives in 1980. Mm -hmm. So. You could think of that as eight years, but the active part of the program was about five years. And, and it's worth kind of pointing out that India is, is among public health officials seen as kind of like the holy grail. Like if you can stop it in India, you can stop it anywhere. And then the same is true with, with polio. Um, India was declared polio free, I think in 2010. Um, and that was considered like one of history's, you know, greatest accomplishment. Now polio is endemic in only two countries in the world, Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. But it was India that was the, 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 the the most difficult in in many ways because of its the the, the sort of density as you mentioned and, and the makeup of it. I, I think that's true. I, I worked in the polio program in Uttar Pradesh, and um, it was certainly difficult. But I think the folks in Pakistan have had a more yeah. difficult uh, job. But I, I do want to mention that last year there were only eighteen cases of polio mm -hmm. in Pakistan. So we we can say endemic, and that's true. But uh, polio is on its last legs, and I know people have been saying that for five years, but um, we're really close. And those little uh, ads you see in newspapers with people holding their fingers apart and saying we're this close, they're true. Mm -hmm. so, so going back to this young girl in, in Bangladesh, you, you met her. What's going through your mind? You knew that she was the last person ever in the history of humanity to be infected with, with smallpox when you saw her. Is no, that right? no, no, no. I hoped that was true. <laughs> I hoped that was true, but we had had so many faults. Uh, uh, so many times we thought we had the last case of smallpox and another one came up. Uh, 
So we had uh, legislated that after the last case, after what was thought to be the last case, there'd be a two-year period where we would have a reward for anyone who would report a case of smallpox. And that mm -hmm. reward began at five rupees and went all the way up to $1,000. And every year we'd collect hundreds of thousands of specimens from suspected cases of smallpox and do virology on them, look at them under an electron microscope. And they were all chicken pox or scabies or something else. That's what made us feel more confident. So it was only in retrospect that we were confident mm -hmm. that Rahim Avanu was the last case of uh, variola major in nature. There were actually a couple of lab uh, cases, accidents afterwards, and there was still the battle against variola minor, which uh, killed only one out of a hundred, um, uh, unlike smallpox, which killed one out of three. Mm -hmm. So th those were all additional parts of the program, but they were not the same thing as this historic, legendary demon of smallpox. So you, you mentioned earlier that that moment um, inspired in you a, a determination to want to keep doing this work. How did you like manifest that, that uh, determination? What did, where did you take that energy? Well, everybody in the smallpox program disbanded and went back to their universities uh, in, in, in Russia or in Brazil or at CDC. And um, I went back to the University of Michigan and got a master's in public health, finally learned public health. <laughs> My wife got her PhD and uh, I became a professor at Michigan and I taught epidemiology. And um, while all the people who went back to their academic institutions were really happy, uh, there was still this you know, this lingering desire, hunger to, to, to do the work we had done as field workers in the smallpox program. And uh, Nicole Grasset um, came to visit me and I actually was visited at the same time by that same spiritual teacher, Ramdas, and by Wavy Gravy, my hippie and spiritual friends and folks from CDC. And it was a really strange gathering <laughs> of all the people I had met in my life. And we decided we would do something like this again and that we would tackle world blindness. And we started the SEVA Foundation. Steve Jobs, who had been in that ashram uh, with me, uh, Steve gave us the money uh, to start this organization in 1979, the SEVA Foundation. And I'm pleased to say that over the last nearly 40 years, um, our programs, projects, and friends have given back sight to more than 4 million blind people uh, all over the world, but mostly in India and mostly at a place called the Aravind Eye Hospital that has really been the leader of the blindness program around the world. What, what is it? Is it the, the river blindness? Like what kind of blindness are, are we talking about? There, there are about 40 million blind people in the world, and about two-thirds of that blindness is caused by cataract. Mm -hmm. And while we may think of cataract as something you get when you're 70 or 80, in, in places that are closer to the equator, it can be you can be 40 or, or 50 when you get it. And it is a, it's a deadly disease in, um, in a developing country. The life expectancy after blindness from cataract is under two years in India or Bangladesh. Um, so uh, techniques were quite cumbersome in 1979. Uh, and the cost of replacing the lens with a bit of plastic called an interocular lens, um, that was very high. It was $500. Uh, but we built factories in India, which now make millions of these little bits of plastic lens for under a dollar. And um, it's possible to, to give back sight 
to a human being for under 30 or $40. It's just remarkable. Have you ever sort of reflected on how so many chance encounters in your life, whether it's with Martin Luther King in, in Michigan or with Steve Jobs in an ashram in India, um, has resulted in just sort of profound, like global, uh, global consequences and has sort of had, you know, not just implications for your own life, but for, you know, people uh, around the world. Oh, sure. I don't think it's me. <laughs> uh, I don't have any illusions. Uh, I can't explain it. Um, I, I don't know whether, I mean, I've, a lot of people have called me Forrest Gump, um, probably because I played ping pong. I don't know, but it, 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 you know, I've, I can't explain it, but you know, I think all of us, if we, if we think back, I mean, there's a joke in medicine that the only diagnostic instrument of any real value is the retrospectoscope. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the prospectoscope would be a nice addition, but I don't own a prospectoscope. <laughs> and I think that if we all look back at our lives, we will find these chance encounters. If we're honest mm -hmm. and we don't, we don't think that we're the best or the smartest person in the world. I mean, is, is writing the memoir like your kind of way to, to process this and, and process how these chance encounters have had such sort of profound global implications? It is. Um, and it, it's also, uh, if I may say, because of the election of, of Donald Trump and because of the divisiveness uh, that has um, occurred in the United States right now, and this feeling from our own election that you know, none of us are any good. We can't get, we can't do anything. I wanted to tell about a time when people of every color, every race, every religion worked together through the United Nations to conquer the worst disease in history. I wanted to write about a time when we were competent and we could get stuff done that really mattered. And we could do it by looking at each other as brothers and sisters and not as enemies or, or silos. Yeah. And that's why I wrote it now. And that was the energy that got me to finish it. Well, I mean, lo looking back at, at, at that era, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the reason that you wanted to stay on that medicine ball caravan uh, after the end of the Pink Floyd concert and not go back to the United States was because of the divisiveness in the United States at, at the time. I mean, right now, I have to, I didn't live through the 60s. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this for the first time. Um, and it's, you know, it's still pretty profoundly scary. Uh, do you sort of have that same flight impulse these days? Or are you a little more grounded? Oh, I'm much more grounded because it was more dangerous then. This is the key. When when the Soviet Union and the United States had um, 40,000 nuclear weapons pointed at each other on hair trigger, and there were many accidents that we talk about, many we don't, that could have enveloped the world in thermonuclear war, that was more difficult and more dangerous than today. When parents wouldn't talk to their children and children left their, their houses because of the device, division over the war in Vietnam, in America, that was a more uh, acrimonious time, even than today. And an era and, of, of political assassination, too. I mean, you're, 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 let, you're let, very let's, here. Let us here. forget John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy were killed. We're not there. We have a tough time ahead of us. Uh, and there is certainly the, the demons of divisiveness have been let loose. But there's also a tremendous feeling of goodwill and that, that we will take two steps forward and one step back. This is one step back, but we will take two steps forward again.
I, I, this is comforting. Thank you. This is far more comforting than how we kicked off with the global pandemic that might destroy us all. So I, I appreciate that. We can stop that pandemic. I, I, the outbreak is inevitable. The jumping of a virus from an animal to human, that's inevitable. But, but enduring a pandemic, that's optional. We, mm-hmm. we don't have to have a pandemic. It doesn't take much money. Uh, I don't know that Tom Frieden was right about the budget of contagion being so much more than his budget for pandemic, but the budget that he had for pandemic response is tiny compared mm-hmm. to what we do for so many other things. No, we can stop that pandemic. We can end pandemics in our lifetime if we're willing as a, as a world society, as a United Nations community, as America, the richest of them, to really put our attention to it. We can end pandemics. Uh, well, Dr. Larry, thank you so much for your time. This is, this is great and fascinating, and everyone should check out your book, Sometimes Brilliant. Mark, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure. Great. Is there anything else you wanted to add, you wanted to get in? I'm, I'm happy to keep talking. I'm, I want to be respectful of, of your time, though. Well, I, I do want to say something about how important the United Nations is. Yeah, this is, and, this is my that, uh, life work, is, is conveying the importance and value of the United Nations to American interests. This is what you, I do you know, every I, day. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I grew up at a time when there were signs all over rural Michigan that said U.S. out of U.N. Mm-hmm. And it, this is, I, I, I think it takes a lot of imagination to think that any country will give up a teeny bit of its sovereignty to form NATO or even NAFTA or any of the UN regional organizations that WHO has or the United Nations itself or any of the post-Second World War Mm -hmm. um, global organizations that that came into existence. Um, But that's the only way we can really get things done in the world at Mm -hmm. a global level. It stands to reason that no nation acting on its own, however powerful, can single-handedly end global threats. They have to be ended by the global community. And I'll just name some of them because mm-hmm. my friend Jeff Skoll articulated those threats that he thought could bring humanity to its knees. What were the existential threats? And everybody will have their own list. Mm-hmm. His was pandemics, global warming, climate change, water, nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction, and regional wars that could blow up into global conflagrations. Those mm-hmm. were his list. I, that, that's I it's, it's, put, a, it's a good list. It's a good list. You could put food security and cyber. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things you can add to that list, but I wouldn't take anything off that list. But but none of those, you can't even imagine conquering, ending, preventing those mm-hmm. global threats without the global community. And you can't imagine the global community working together without well, the United Nations. And, and And the proof is in that those all those threats have become far more mitigated today than they were 70 years ago before the advent of the United Nations. You know, the, the, the world has never been more prosperous. The world has, um, uh, you know, never seen fewer wars uh, than, than now. And there has never been a great power war since the advent of the, the United Nations. There, you know, the list kind of goes, goes on and on. So, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. You know, my, my day job is writing a blog about the United Nations that's supported by the United Nations Foundation. So this is stuff oh, well, that I, I, I even, wrestle even with. Foundation is, yeah, I wrestle with my, this my stuff uh, yeah. every day. Yeah. And, and, you know, now the, the big news is the reinstatement of the global gag rule, um, which is, is you know, it, it, it turns out that um, 
Trump's version of the global gag rule is far more intense than the Bush administration's uh, rule. The Trump's uh, executive order that he signed yesterday affects every global health program uh, administered by any branch of government, not just uh, reproductive health. So it's, it's right. yeah, it's it, it, this news kind of came out late last night when the actual text of the executive order was released. So that's the next the next big fight, I think. Well, we, we need to remember that um, we're all in it together and that it can't the it being a better world for everyone can't be accomplished without the United Nations and its um, uh, its specialized agencies. And as cumbersome and complicated and different frustrating as the bureaucracy is at the World Health Organization and as egregious, I think, as the errors that were made, if anybody says, let's abolish WHO, you're going to have to create a new one. We have to have one. Yeah. Better to fix the one that we have. Was it um, Doc Hammarskjöld's line? You know, we didn't create these things. We didn't create the UN to take us to heaven, but to prevent us from going back to hell. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I, w- I wish that in your your blog you would talk about Doc Hammarskjöld and Utant and Trugvalli and and, the, and and from my point of view, the kind of spiritual motivation, not 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 religious, but the spiritual mm-hmm. motivation that gave birth to the, those amazing mm-hmm. early director generals, because they they brought a moral clarity to the work that that they did and mm-hmm. an aspiration. And, and I think, I, I think this new guy too. I, th- I think Antonio Guterres might 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 be the guy to 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 kind of carry that flame. He, he is charismatic. I've heard that, and uh, he has that kind por- of uh, outlook. I think I was in Portugal when he was named, and they were jumping in the streets for that reason. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I do think that the UN has that uh, done t- terrible job on uh, PR and mm-hmm. on explaining itself and on bragging and on marketing and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it arose from a time when people were more humble <laughs> and more reticent mm-hmm. to shout out in big, you know, gold-plated letters what their name was. Um, but, but in a way, uh, I'd like to see the UN take its light out from under a bushel and talk about the war stopped, the lives saved, the suffering ended. I mean, in a better way, the things that UNICEF have done that will make mm-hmm. you cry with its magnificence. And WHO uh, has had some terrific successes. And by the way, let there be no doubt, you could not eradicate polio without UNICEF and WHO and the Gates Foundation and Rotary and all the people who have walked, put their boots on the street. There's 5 million who have worked in India and a proportionate amount in Pakistan have risked their life. A hundred polio workers have been murdered in Pakistan by the Taliban. And still every day, polio workers go to work, going door to door in the most difficult circumstances. These are heroes, and I would like to see more about the heroism of individual global health workers, but also more about the UN. I think that it's the time that, you, in a way, a, a skeptical uh, population in the, at, during the rise of populism, the skepticism about the UN mm-hmm. has got to be met with... Um, uh, talking about the the great victories and success stories and the heroes inside of the UN and um, maybe Guterres can do that. Yeah, if if anyone, it it could be him. He is a, a skilled a skilled communicator for sure. Uh, well, Larry, thank you again for your time, for the book, for your work. This was fascinating and and fun. Thank you, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it a lot. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, I could sort of tell at the end of the interview that he uh, he wasn't ready to be finished. Although, you know, I, I didn't want to like take up his entire day. So glad we had that extra 10 minutes to chat at the end about the United Nations, uh, a subject that I, I grapple with on pretty much a daily basis. Anyway, thank you so much to Larry, to you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.